Morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you as needy people who know that everything that we have, we have received from you. We thank you especially for the gift of faith in your Son that you have given to us. Praise you for the mercy that you have shown us in saving us from our sins. But Father, we also acknowledge that our faith is sometimes small and weak. And so we pray that you would, through the means of the preaching of your word, strengthen our trust in you. Please, Father, use your word to speak to our hearts this morning that we would not leave this room unchanged. We pray also for those among us who do not know you yet. Pray that this morning you would bring life to the spiritually dead. We know that the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, and so we ask that you would do exactly that this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 7. We continue this morning in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and Lord willing, our goal this morning is to cover chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. Now, my hope, my goal each and every Sunday in preaching the Word of God to you is that I would clearly present and explain and apply the text so that God might speak to your heart through his word. Uh, the word of God is the primary means that God, uh, through which God speaks to us today. And so every sermon is for all of God's people in that sense. Uh, but my hope is that this week's sermon is a particular encouragement to those of you brothers and sisters who maybe are going through a season of uh, struggling with doubts or, or dealing with areas of unbelief in your life, or maybe just kind of finding yourself in a season of discouragement in your faith, uh, that this passage would particularly speak to you, and that you would see how God, in his infinitely wise and perfect word, his living and active word, uh, how he speaks to such issues in the life of the believer. And so let's get right to our text, Luke chapter 7. Verses 18 to 23, this is the word that God has for you this morning. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the man had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So let me give you our three points up front. Uh, hopefully these will help us uh, to kind of guide us through the structure of this text. You've got the question that's in verses 18 through 20. You've got the answer 
That's in verses 21 and 22. And then thirdly, the beatitude is in verse 23. So let's start with a question. Look at verse 18. The disciples of John, referring of course to John the Baptist, the disciples of John report all these things to him. All these things, referring of course to what Jesus did, uh, all these things is kind of a generic and ambiguous phrase. And so we can't be exactly sure what it includes. But remember where we've just been in this gospel. The two stories that directly precede this account. Beginning of chapter 7, Jesus heals the centurion's son. Sorry, the centurion's servant. Right? The centurion's servant is on the verge of death. He's about to die, but Jesus heals him from a distance. He just speaks the word, and the man is healed. And then right after that, we have the story that we covered last week, the raising of the widow at Nain's son. And so now we're not dealing with someone who's on the verge of death. We are dealing with someone who's already dead, on the bier, being carried to the burial site. And Jesus interrupts this procession, raises him, again, just by his word. Young man, I say to you, arise. And the young man gets up. And look at how the account of the raising of the widow's son, how that account ends in verse 17. This report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And so verse 17, this report about him spread. And now the very next verse, verse 18, the disciples of John reported these things to him. John, this is amazing. John, Jesus is doing all of these miracles. John, he is even raising the dead. He just brought a widow's son back to life. Wait a minute. Why are John's disciples having to bring reports of these things to him? Like, why why doesn't John just go and see these things for himself? Remember, it's been a while since we've seen John in this narrative. But remember where we left him all the way back in chapter 3. John is in prison. Luke 3, verses 19 and 20, you remember this? Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Herod the Tetrarch, you remember all the Herods of the Bible? This guy is Herod Antipas. He is the son of the Herod the Great, from the Christmas story, right? The guy who had all the babies in Bethlehem massacred. Uh, So this Herod, who locks up John the Baptist, he is the son of that Herod. And you know what they say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This guy is a bad dude just like his father. He basically takes his brother, Philip's wife, a lady named Herodias, who also happens to be his niece, He divorces his own wife and takes Herodias to be his wife instead. Like any way you slice it. There's like sin on like five different levels there. And so John boldly rebukes Herod for that. And not only for that, but if you look at verse 19 again, he confronts him about all of the evil things that Herod had done. Remember John... John is a preacher of righteousness. He's a, he's a preacher of repentance. And so, so surely he is calling Herod to forsake his sin and to repent. And so John's 
John's shining a light in some really dark places here. And everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed, which in this case means that Herod has John locked up. Now, secular history tells us that John was locked up in a fortress called Machaerus, uh, which would have been located by the Dead Sea. Now, how long he was imprisoned there, we're not quite sure, but like however long it was, six months, a year, whatever it might have been, we know one thing for sure, and that's that it was a miserable time. This isn't like, like a comfortable house arrest. Right? This is being thrown into a deep dungeon. Right? He would have been in horrible conditions. He would have been given meager rations of food and drink. He would have had absolutely no hope of parole or pardon or anything like that. After all, this is a Herod that we're talking about here. This is not exactly a family known for its kindness and mercy. And we know from the other Gospels that John was never freed. He wasted away in prison until he had his head cut off by Herod. I remember when Abby was little, we would ask her what her favorite Bible stories were. And her, her two favorites were Korah's Rebellion, where a guy gets swallowed up by the earth, and Ananias and Sapphira, where God struck two people dead for lying. And I used to think, like, man, like, did we, did we do something wrong in our parenting? <laughs> but then I found out that a good pastor friend of mine, who's a really good parent, his daughter's favorite Bible story was Herod cutting off the head of John the Baptist and putting it on a platter. That made me feel a lot better <laughs> about myself and my parenting. But back to Luke 7. Right, John's not dead yet. He gets this report from his disciples about all that Jesus has been doing. And he sends two of his disciples back to Jesus with a question. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Are you really the promised Messiah? The one that we've been waiting for? Or is it actually someone else? Now that question, that's a somewhat surprising question. Remember that for us, as readers of this gospel, like, by this point in the gospel, Luke has definitively established for us that, yes, Jesus is the one to come. Jesus is the Messiah. Like, every narrative that we have encountered from chapter 4 onwards has made that one point crystal clear. We've seen his authoritative teaching. No one ever spoke like this man. We've seen his powerful miracles. Uh, most clearly in, I think, last week's narrative of the raising of the widow at Nain's son. We've even seen that in how Luke addresses Jesus. You remember how last week, for the very first time in the gospel, Luke, as the narrator, he refers to Jesus as Lord, the Lord. Acknowledging him as the sovereign king of the universe. And then as if to drive that point home, look at how he does it again this week. Look at verse 19. Right, to whom does John send his disciples? Luke tells us he sent them to the Lord. And so we as readers of this gospel, like we're following Luke's presentation of these things here, like we know that this is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who was to come. But that doesn't necessarily mean that 
the questions to surprise us. After all, the the crowds, the multitudes, they seem to be constantly confused as to who this Jesus is. Remember last week, they acknowledge him as a great prophet, but nothing more. The crowds are constantly confused about him. But here's the thing. This isn't some random guy from the crowds, from the multitudes, questioning whether Jesus is really the Messiah. The question is surprising primarily because of who is asking it. It comes from none other than John the Baptist. John the Baptist. I mean, consider who this guy is. You remember the gospel actually starts with John, or his narrative, how he would be born as the forerunner to the Messiah. That's how the gospel of Luke begins. And you'll remember what the angel Gabriel said about John in Luke chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he, John the Baptist, will be great before the Lord. So we're talking about a guy here who is set apart, not just from birth, but really from conception, to be great before the Lord. Great as the one who goes before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And in next week's passage, we're going to see Jesus himself praise John. Among those born of women, no one is greater than John. This man is more than a prophet, Jesus says. So that's who he is. But also consider what he's done. His life's work. You remember back in chapter 3, like before we're introduced to the ministry of Jesus, we're actually introduced to the ministry of John. John is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He becomes immensely popular, right? Large crowds come out to him and he boldly preaches to them repentance. But even more importantly, what he did, well, he pointed everyone to Christ. Luke 3.16 is just one example. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. He who is mightier than I, Jesus, is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so you see what he's saying there. He who is mightier than I is coming. That is, Jesus is the coming one, the long-expected Messiah. Or as he says elsewhere, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John spends his life, he spends his ministry taking the attention of the crowds off of himself. I am not the Christ. And instead pointing them to Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. And so who he is, what he's done, and then just to top it all off, consider what he has seen Remember, John is the one who baptizes Jesus, which means he saw Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And he heard God the Father speak audibly, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And John saw great things. Even this visible and audible confirmation that Jesus really was the Messiah, the one who was to come. But it's this man 
John the Baptist, a great man of God who did great things as the forerunner for Jesus and saw great confirmations of who Jesus was. It's this man who asks that question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And now you see why it's such a surprising question. The same guy who spent the entirety of his life in ministry boldly proclaiming that the one who was to come was finally here. Now his confidence perhaps is wavering just a bit. And he's wondering, did I get it right? As a matter of fact, this is such a surprising question that some have tried to play it down by saying, well, this isn't John himself doubting. This is John asking the question for the sake of his disciples so that they might be strengthened in their faith. Well, it's possible, but I think that's unlikely. Because look at verse 22, what Jesus says in response to the question. He says, go and tell John. Tell John. Why would the instruction be to tell John? Remember, he's imprisoned many miles away. Why would the instruction be to tell John if it was only for the disciples' benefit? And look at what Jesus says at the end. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's in the singular, not the plural, because it's not addressing the two, plural, disciples who came to Jesus. It's addressed to John. And so if John really is asking on behalf of his disciples, Well, Jesus certainly doesn't seem to interpret it that way. Now, I think the issue here is that John himself is struggling with a form of doubt. He is struggling to understand if Jesus really is who he thought he was. Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? And so we need to ask ourselves here what happened? How does a question like that, whether Jesus is really the one to come, how does a question like that come out of the mouth of one who's been proclaiming that Jesus is the one to come basically for his entire life? Now, admittedly, we're going to have to do a little bit of conjecturing because neither John nor Luke explicitly tell us why John is asking this question. But I think we can take some very educated guesses here. I mean, first, consider just the fact that he's in prison. And here he is, the forerunner of the Messiah, the messenger of the king. And now the king is here, and John hears of all of these wonderful things that the king is doing. But wait a second. If you're really the king, then why am I, your faithful messenger, stuck in this dungeon, rotting away with no hope? Like, if you're the one to come, if you're really him, why am I here? Things are not how I think they should be. Things are not how I would like them to be. And this, perhaps, contributes to his faith wavering. Perhaps you can relate. But things in your life, the circumstances of your life, perhaps they're not going exactly how you would like them to go. And those negative circumstances, those unfavorable circumstances cause your faith to waver just a bit. God, are you really there? God, do you really love me? Uh, am Am I really your child? 
God, are you actually in control? It's a common theme we see throughout the scriptures. That's basically what the entire book of Habakkuk is about. The prophet sees Israel in shambles. The prophet sees Israel being oppressed by ungodly peoples. The prophet sees Israel in dire circumstances. And so he cries out, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? These dire circumstances around him make Habakkuk wonder. What's going on? And so perhaps some of John's doubt is fueled by his own personal terrible circumstances. A second possible contributor to this question, John's faith could be wavering because, well, Jesus isn't exactly what he expected the Messiah to be. We know that this was a huge issue in Jesus' day. This is a large part of why he came to his own, but his own people received him not. Because many Jews had inaccurate expectations of what the Messiah would be like. Many of them thought that he would be this political deliverer. He would come to establish an earthly kingdom, and in his power and in his might, he would overthrow their Roman oppressors. He would be one who would right all of the injustices that the people were under. He'd bring all this judgment upon their enemies. He would throw it back to the good old days of the Davidic kingdom. But Jesus, Jesus seems to be doing none of that. And instead of, instead of destroying the Roman centurions and freeing our people, well, he's He's loving the centurions. He's he's healing their servants and he's even praising them for their faith. Instead of rubbing elbows with the religious elite to establish our own leadership apart from Roman rule, he's just rebuking them for self-righteousness and instead he's spending all of his time with tax collectors and sinners. Instead of going to Jerusalem or maybe even Rome, to overthrow the Romans and establish our earthly kingdom. This guy is spending time in nowhere places like Nain, dealing with insignificant widows. Like Jesus is not doing what the people, and perhaps included in that is a little bit of John the Baptist, what the people were expecting the Messiah to do. And so John's left wondering... Wait, if Jesus, if Jesus isn't doing any of those things that we all thought the Messiah would be doing, did I get this wrong? What if, what if everything that I've been saying my entire life was a mistake? As great a man as he is, as great as the work for the kingdom that he did was, as great as the things that he witnessed were, right? In this moment, in his weakness and frailty, John here is struggling. He's not being a cynical skeptic. He's not being hard-hearted in his unbelief and doubt. Like, this is him genuinely struggling and asking with his soul in anguish, are you who I thought you were? Point number one, the question 
Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That brings us to the answer. Verses 21 and 22. Now, if you've never read this story in your life, well, how might you expect Jesus to respond here? Well, maybe you think that Jesus would just deliver John from prison. I mean, he is the omnipotent, sovereign Lord who can perform miracles like raising the dead. I mean, surely he could orchestrate some chain of events here to bust John out of jail. You know, kind of like when the angel of the Lord frees Peter from jail in Acts chapter 12, or when an earthquake frees Paul and Silas, right, in Acts chapter 16. Like, like surely Jesus could have done something like that. John, you want to know if I'm the one to come? Boom, right? Free from prison. Now you know, John. But in this perfect sovereign wisdom, Jesus does not do that. He actually lets John continue in that same prison until his unceremonial death. Or maybe you think that a rebuke here is coming. Oh, you of little faith. You've been saying that I'm the one to come for your entire life and now you're wavering? Are you serious? But no. Here Jesus sees John faithful, but battered and beleaguered, John. Well, Jesus sees him, and he sees a bruised reed, right? He sees a a smoldering wick. And so he takes great care to not break or quench him. But notice that he doesn't respond by just answering the question. First, he demonstrates his power in the presence of John's disciples. Look at verse 21. In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. Now don't take that for granted. Because remember, when the Pharisees ask him to do something similar, like perform a sign for us, what does he say? An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Like, he's not going to accommodate their hard and unbelieving hearts. They just want to see a sign, but they're going to reject him anyway. He's not going to accommodate hearts like that by doing miracles for them. But John, he knows John's heart. He knows that John's not asking this question from a a place of hard-hearted unbelief, but from a place of weakened and battered faith. He's uncertain He's wondering, he's wavering. And so Jesus does these miracles in the presence of these two disciples. And then Jesus tells them, look at verse 22, go and tell John. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. But you see, it's important we realize that that's more than just like, hey, I hope you guys are paying attention and taking notes. I want you to tell John all the cool things that you just saw. No, Jesus is doing much more than that here. He is specifically putting the things that he is doing in the framework and the context of Old Testament prophecy about what would happen when the Messiah came. The passages like Isaiah 35 Verses 5 and 6. Passages that tell of what things are going to be like when Messiah has come. And so I just want you to see the parallels between that passage, Isaiah 35, and what Jesus is saying here. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. 
The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And so go and tell John. Go and tell John that the very things that Isaiah prophesied there about the Messiah, go and tell John that that is what's happening right now. If you've ever watched Sesame Street, you know the segment, one of these things is not like the other. So they got like a banana, an apple, an orange, and like a screwdriver. And one of these things is not like the other. Well, did you notice Luke 7.22? There's six things that Jesus lists there. And one of these things is not like the other. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. Those are five spectacular kinds of miracles, signs that the Messiah would perform that Jesus has indeed performed, culminating in what we said last week was the greatest of the signs thus far, the raising of the dead, right? The dead are raised up. But then comes the screwdriver, right? The poor have good news preached to them. One of these things is not like the other, but we know where that's from. If you've been with us for any length of time, you better know where that's from because we talk about it every week. That's Isaiah 61. And Jesus has explicitly said that he has come in fulfillment of that prophecy from Isaiah 61, right? You remember Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To preach good news to the poor. That's why he came, to proclaim good news to the poor. He's come to minister to the poor in spirit, to the tax collectors and the sinners, to the outcasts those on the margins of Jewish religious society, to the widows of Nain. And he's come to bring the good news of salvation to such people. That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And so go and tell John. Or go and tell John that Jesus might not be doing exactly what John and others expected him to do, but he is doing exactly what the Spirit of the Lord has anointed him to do. He's doing exactly what the Scriptures, like Isaiah 35, exactly what the Scriptures prophesied that Messiah would do. Right? All the promises of God find their yes in him. And he's going to fulfill everything that John himself said about him. He is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is indeed the sacrificial lamb, the Messiah, who would die for sin. Even John's sin, that all of God's people might be made right with him. And so, John the Baptist, take heart. Take heart. You're in prison, yes. And you're going to die for righteousness' sake, yes. But take comfort. Be of good cheer, because I am exactly who you thought I was. The one who was to come. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Savior who's going to die for your sin. What a reassuring word that must have been for John. 
Look, for his disciples to bring that answer back to him, go and tell John those gentle words of his Savior that would bring him assurance in this dark winter of his soul. Point number two, the answer. And so we've seen the question, are you the one who is to come? We've seen the answer, go and tell John. That brings us to the beatitude. Look at verse 23. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You remember the beatitudes we looked at in Luke chapter 6? Blessed are you who are... Well, you can think of this as kind of like another beatitude. Another statement about what it is that makes someone blessed in God's economy, in God's kingdom. It's a pretty straightforward statement. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word offended has an interesting kind of etymology. It's a word that literally refers to the stick or the trigger of a trap. And so, you remember those old cartoons? Like Elmer Fudd, he's trying to trap Bugs Bunny. He's hunting wabbits. And and what does he do? He takes a big wooden box, he puts it upside down, and then he puts like a little stick on one end to prop up the box. And the stick, I don't know, it's like tied to some carrot or whatever, so that if Bugs Bunny takes that carrot and he moves that stick, what happens? The box falls on him and Elmer Fudd has trapped him, except that never happens because he always outsmarts Elmer Fudd. Well, that stick, that stick is what this word is referring to here. And so from that idea of like a trap or a snare the word came to mean like a stumbling block. Something that causes someone to, to fall or be ensnared or trapped. And so Jesus is saying here, blessed is the one for whom I, right, what, who I am and what I'm doing, for whom I am not a stumbling block, for, for whom I am not a, a trap. Blessed are you, John, if you don't allow your current circumstances being locked up in prison by Herod, if you don't allow those circumstances to cause you to stumble, to take offense. Blessed are you if you're able to look past those circumstances and trust that even though I'm not going to provide you with temporal and earthly deliverance, I'm going to give you something far better, eternal deliverance from your sin, just like you said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed are you, John, if you don't let misaligned expectations about who I am and what I've come to do, expectations of an earthly kingdom or immediate judgment or a political messiah, blessed are you if you don't let those things make you stumble. Blessed are you if instead you're able to see the things that I've done and see that indeed I am the one to come, the messiah. Now, we don't know how John received all this. Like, we don't know what happened when his disciples went back to him. But I think we can reasonably guess, given the praise that Jesus gives him in the very next section, I think we can guess that he treasured up all these things in his heart, that he was greatly encouraged to press on to the end. I think we can reasonably guess that he did not stumble, that he was not offended by Jesus, and thus blessed is he. But you see, for many others, Jesus would indeed be a stumbling block. He would be a source of offense. 
He would be a stumbling block because of his background. I mean, here's this. Here's this carpenter's son from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? This poor itinerant teacher, nowhere to lay his head, had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He doesn't look like anything majestic. And that was a stumbling block for many. And his message, his message would be a stumbling block. That those who would pursue righteousness by works, like the Pharisees of the day, well, they could never be right with God. Because it depends solely on the mercy of God. Paul, talking about his own people, the Jews, wrote this in Romans 9. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And here it is. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The very idea... That the only way to be right with God is to acknowledge your sin and then place your trust in a crucified Savior. Again, that's a major stumbling block. 1 Corinthians one twenty three says that the very idea of Christ crucified, well, it's a stumbling block. Friends, maybe some of you fall into this very category this morning. And Jesus, his person, his work, His gospel, his crucifixion, well, to you, that's a stumbling block. Like there's a part of you that knows that you need to be made right with God. But the thought of giving your life to Jesus, that's a stumbling block for you. Or the idea that you're so bad and you're so wretched and you're so sinful that you need a savior to die in your place, that's a stumbling block. I think I'm a good person. Why would I need someone to die for my sins? What do you mean I deserve to go to hell unless I repent and my sins are paid for? You see how the gospel is inherently offensive. It is a stumbling block. Well, if that's you, I say to you what Jesus said to John. Blessed is the one who is not offended by him. Blessed is the one to whom God gives grace, to whom God gives faith, so that they don't stumble over Jesus and his gospel and his cross. Blessed is the one who instead embraces all of that by faith, who truly trusts and believes that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, exactly who John said he was, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. You've got your question, you've got your answer, and you've got your beatitude. Let me leave you with two kind of closing takeaways as we think about how we might apply this passage to our lives. The first takeaway is to recognize that genuine believers can struggle with doubts. I think one of the most remarkable things about the Bible, well, the most remarkable thing about the Bible is that it's the Word of God, but one of the most remarkable things about the Bible is how realistic it is in its portrayals of 
those whom we would consider to be its heroes. Moses, the murderer. David, the adulterer. Jacob, the deceiver. Elijah, the scaredy cat. Peter, the denier, right? The, the Bible is brutally honest in how it presents the faults of some of its great men, not whitewashed at all. And so it is with John the Baptist, right? Jesus says it himself, and we're going to cover this passage next week. Among those born of women, none is greater than John, but the greatest of men, the best of men, are men at best. And so here in this passage, we're given this kind of brutally honest depiction of John the Baptist in his weakest moment. His faith is wavering. His doubts are rising. These questions are coming up. And it shows us, does it not, that faithful servants of the Lord can doubt. Doubt in God's word, doubt in God's promises. They're things that true and faithful believers can struggle with. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you, you love the Lord, but at the same time, you're, you're struggling in your faith and you're, you're just wrestling with questions and doubts and you, you, you might feel like, surely I am the only person who has ever had thoughts like these. I must not even be a Christian. Well, you need to know that John the Baptist, a genuine believer, a true man of God, if there ever was one, that John the Baptist here is struggling with doubts. You need to know that the disciples, the disciples, even after the resurrection, after they've gotten rid of Judas, they still struggled with doubts. Matthew 28, 16 and 17. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. You need to know that the disciples struggled with doubts. You need to know that Martin Luther struggled with doubts. You need to know that Charles Spurgeon struggled with doubts. You need to know that many in this church, including me, have struggled with doubts. Like Spurgeon once said, I do not believe there ever existed a Christian yet who did not now and then doubt his interest in Jesus. I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. Spurgeon for you. But let me be clear about something. This is not like a misery loves company kind of thing, like, hey, it's okay to doubt because look at John the Baptist. He's struggling with doubt. Now, just to be clear, doubt and unbelief are sins. Doubt is displeasing to God because without faith, Hebrew says, it is impossible to please him. James says that the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so doubt and unbelief, they're real and they happen to faithful believers. But at the same time, right, we need to be absolutely clear that they are sins that must be repented of. Which brings us to our second takeaway, which is that in doubt, believers must go to the Lord. You got John the Baptist here. He is sitting in his prison cell. He is wondering deep in his heart, like, was my life's work wrong? Was I right about this whole Messiah thing? Is he really the one to come? He's wrestling with these doubts. To where does he ultimately go? He goes to Jesus. He sends his disciples to Jesus. And so the true believer must do the same. You see, you don't need perfect faith to go to the Lord. 
You don't need perfect faith to go to the Lord. You just need enough faith to believe that he's going to help you through it. It's like the man with the demon-possessed child, Mark chapter 9. And Jesus says, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the man cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Like, I believe, I really believe that you are who you say you are, that you are the Messiah, that you are the Savior, that you are the Son of God. But at the same time, I acknowledge that my faith is weak, uh, that it's prone to wander, that it wavers. It's not as steadfast as it should be. And so please, Jesus, help me. See, asking Jesus to increase your faith is in itself an act of faith. Because you're trusting that he can actually grant you what you are lacking. And so brothers and sisters, any in this room who are struggling in this season with doubts or perhaps wavering faith, let's go to the Lord. Go to the Lord in repentance, right? confessing your doubts and unbelief and believing that when the gospel says that Jesus died for all of our sin, that includes our doubts and our unbelief. Go to the Lord in prayer, right? casting all your burdens on him, including your struggle to take him at his word. Go to the Lord in his word. That is, after all, where Jesus points John, right? Hey, John, remember what the word of God, Isaiah chapter 35, has to say about the Messiah? And John, you can see for yourself how all the promises of Scripture find their yes and amen in Jesus. Go to the Lord in his word because you remember the whole reason that Luke wrote this gospel. Remember Luke chapter 1 verse 4? It's so that Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, would have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so you want certainty, you turn to the word of God. Go to the Lord knowing that faith is ultimately a gift from him. Right? Asking him to grant you the faith that you lack And go to the Lord believing that regardless of how far you might feel from him in this season, that the promise of James chapter 4 verse 8 is really true. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And if you do draw near to him, if you do in faith, maybe small faith, but if you do in faith go to him, well, you'll find exactly what John did. That whoever goes to Jesus, he will never, ever cast out. Father, we thank you for your kind and tender mercies that you show us in the gospel of your Son. Father, we pray that where we, your people, lack faith, that we would repent, that we would go to you, and that you would graciously grant us to believe more firmly in the promises of your word. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not yet know you. We pray that you would indeed grant them faith this morning, that Christ would not be a stumbling block, that the gospel would not be a stumbling block for them, but that you would give them, uh, that you would grace them with eyes to see the glory of Christ in his crucified redemption. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.